Yeah, it ain't the top of the hour. It's two minutes past. My fault. It's on Swizz today. But, hey, it's Wednesday. I'm feeling good despite the fact that the Yankees seemingly haven't won in a month, Dan. This is Market Call. I am Guy Adami. I'm always joined by Dan Nathan. In just a brief few minutes, Tom Sosnoff, founder and CEO of Tasty Trade, is joining us. And, of course, it's Wednesday. It's Carter Braxton Worth. And I got to tell you something, folks. He has a bold call that you got to sort of stick with us to find out about. Today's episode is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics that are powered by tomorrow. Tasty Trade, empowering the individual investor through content, technology, and know-how, something that I need a little bit more of. And of course, Dan, we're powered by Open Exchange. I am always powered by life. How are you, you are powered. Nostradami here yesterday. 24 mm. hours ago, you said to the people, to our viewers, to our <sighs> listeners, you said, listen, I think today's going to be one of those days. We did start to get that reversal in the S&P 500, but you said 4268. Now, you thought we'd close there. Okay, you know, but maybe close enough for government work mm. here, guy. When you look at this SPX chart, the S&P 500, man, where did we stop to almost, as Carter would say, to the penny? Yeah. He doesn't look. He doesn't look at the 200-day. We know he's a 150-day moving average guy. But look at that, and also that downtrend that he articulated very clearly Monday on Market Call. Here, talk to me about the S&P 500. It felt like it was getting a little long in the tooth here. You were saying a reversal 42.68. Are we just getting started? Yeah, I think so. And look, I did think it was going to happen yesterday, and for about 20 minutes or so, it really looked like it would. Then, obviously, it. Fell its footing late in the day and it closed where it closed. But here we are today and it makes sense. Listen, we traded right up to that trend line. We draw these lines because they matter. Obviously stopped at the moving average. Carter's going to talk about all this later, but I do think yesterday is one of those days you're going to come back to and say, okay, that was it. It felt, it really felt like people were euphoric yesterday. Again, I'm not going to suggest it was panic buying, but it just felt like people were giving the all clear sign for everything the way the market was trading. And it just didn't make any sense to me, especially in light of the fact that we're here from these Fed geniuses in terms of their minutes in a little while. So, yeah, I think yesterday's important. I think obviously today makes sense to me because this is where I thought we would be. And we'll see how we close out the day, Dan. Well, it doesn't feel great right now. And, you know, I throw the NASDAQ 100 up here. And again, you know, this thing is not, you know, it's trading, what, 24% above those lows here. A lot of people think there's a new bull market guy in the NDX. We didn't even draw any lines there. You see the 200-day. It didn't get there. But what I think is actually more interesting is what's gone on over the last couple of days with rates moving higher and a lot of people like us suggesting that maybe the rally is about to turn here a little bit. Look at this ARC complex, you know, mm-hmm. that, that ARC ETF, the innovation ETF, because the person who runs it, she just continues to buy innovation, guy. I don't know if you can just buy innovation, but you can buy a lot of stocks that are down 80% and call it innovation, or at least the companies here. But look at the top four holdings. They make up about 30%. And the test Tesla at 9.5%. It's back to the number one holding here. This one's kind of interesting to me. Next week, they have their AI day. They have their three-for-one split. It's shown really good relative strength of late here. I don't love this one. Zoom was downgraded yesterday. We talked about that big move over the last two days. Roku, which had a horrible quarter in guidance a few weeks ago that had a monster rally filling in the gap after that. So I don't like a lot of these names. They look vulnerable to me, guys. Yeah, I agree. And listen, the most innovative thing about ARC over the last year or so is the fact that somebody came in with an inverse ARC ETF. And I'm not trying to be a jerk. It just happens to be true. And if you got into that one, you scored 
And it was Michael Burry who last summer said, you know what, it's time to short the ARK ETF. He'd literally called it to the day. And as they say, the cheapest thing to do, Dan, is pay attention. I paid attention to Tom Sosnoff last week, who, by the way, we're going to bring in in a second. And he said at $900 here, you know, the risk reward on the long side doesn't really line up. And he's right. We're just vacillating here. I think the path of least resistance in Tesla is probably lower into that Whatever day you want to call AI, it. artificial intelligence guy. Oh, I like I mean, that's that what AI. the kids are saying. Yeah, but here's right, the thing: right. we just want to throw up this one-year chart of the arc here, and you know, it did start to show decent relative strength June, early mm-hmm. July, relative to the major indices. You saw a huge rip in a lot of those names that we just talked about that make up a big weighting here. But again, look where it paused just over the last week or so at that breakdown level from May, which was also that kind of late May low. So interesting level there. Again, if it breaks that uptrend that has been in place since mid-June, it's likely because Tesla is leading the way. You know, I watch the television in the morning. What's that show in the morning called? Squawk Box. Is that the one? That's the one. Or whatever one it was. Anyway, but I saw this. I said, I know him. That's Tom Sosnoff. Tom, how are you? You were on the CNBC today. I was. I was. (laughs) It was a really special occasion. (laughs) And listen, it's interesting you said this, and I know exactly what you meant. You said... It's possible that Elon Musk doesn't know that Man U is a publicly traded company. I happen to agree with you, but not knowing the law or not knowing the law is not absolves, you know, doesn't absolve you from breaking the law. And I'm not suggesting he's breaking the law, but you get what I'm saying. At a certain point, there has to be ramifications for his actions, I would think. Well, tell Trump that. I mean, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring that up. You know, you know, I think there should be ramifications for his actions in general. I mean, if any CEO in the financial service space so much as like just looks the wrong way, you know, we're in front of a SEC investigation and we're being audited and basically it's a $10 million fine or a $100 million mm-hmm. fine, whatever it is. For some reason with Elon, he gets away with crap that is just unbelievable. I mean, in the case of Man U, let's face, I mean, I actually thought if it was if it was a public company, it wouldn't even be publicly traded in the US. I figured it'd be publicly traded in on the, you know, on the FTSE 250 or something. But uh, I was surprised to see it's only a two billion dollar company. And, you know, so that was a little bit strange to me. But I do think that Elon, as the richest person in the world and somebody that could obviously buy that team with his eyes closed, and because it is publicly traded. Yeah, I, I think it's wrong. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think your point about the former president is that, you know, they think the rules don't apply to him, them. And, you know, when you're in the office of the presidency, he obviously could do what he wanted. And then he was kind of kind of kicking the can down the road to see what would happen afterwards. And we see the aftermath of that. I mean, listen, Tom, I feel very confident in this. I think we've reached peak Musk. I think the sort of activity in which he thinks he can get away with will ultimately catch up with him. And I think that what's clear is, is that it is catching up with the former president. So again, I'm not trying to be political here. It's just no, the way our system works. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and ultimately, again, you know, he's had run-ins over the SEC or with the SEC for the same exact sort of stuff. This, you know, prior was as it related to his own company. Well, let's talk about this because again, you know, 
that seems a little like kind of odd behavior in a market that has been fairly depressed for the better part of 2022. But we're also seeing some odd behavior come back in some of these meme stocks. I think that's what you were talking about this morning on CNBC. I mean, I don't love that name meme stock because to me, when I look at what's going on with like a bed, bath and beyond, it's kind of simple. We had a guy who was involved with one of the OG memes, right? This is that the Cohen guy, he's involved in this bed, bath and beyond. He buys a bunch of call options a while ago he discloses them okay you have all of this options activity you have high short interest you have all these traders on the internet following it thoughts here about what it means from a sentiment standpoint where we are in the markets and how you think about this situation specifically from a sentiment side i actually think it's really good for business i think it's good for me i think it's good for you i think it's good for uh, cnbc and all financial media because what it does is it reinforces that there is a massive audience. I mean, you saw the volume yesterday in mm-hmm. BBBY. It was 300 and whatever, 50 million shares. It was massive option volume. And it reinforces and validates that there is a massive speculative audience out there that had just been sidelined because they got nervous and they weren't used to anything but basically buying. And when crypto crashed and when the high beta stocks crashed and when the meme stocks crashed, there was nothing for them to do. So they kind of just took a little bit of a hiatus and, and sat in the sidelines for a while. And they're, and they're obviously there and they're ready to play and they want to play. And I think that came out yesterday. I think that's a really good sign. It's especially a good sign for, you know, firms like Robinhood, firms like Interactive Brokers, Schwab, even, mm-hmm. even IG, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's good for all of us on the, on the financial service side. It's good for all the financial media companies. It's good for the business in general. It's good for financial literacy players, you know, speculation, players, risk-taking, that's all good. Well, you love the markets. We talk about it all the time. You've said flat out that you, I don't want to say junkie because that's a derogatory term, but you, you live for this. Yeah. Do you look at this and say, there's a way I can trade around this? Are you just an observer through all this? And whether it's Bed Bath & Beyond or GameStop or any of those things. I'm I'm both. I'm an opportunist guy. So I look at this as, hey, you know what? It reminds me of the, my floor trading, you know, years. And we would go to wherever there was noise. And Mm -hmm. the beautiful thing about noise is it means everybody's alive. And so I love when things get out of control. I love when things get crazy. I love when there's high volatility. You know, everything makes sense to me. I think to answer Dan's question, though, specifically in this case, I think it's interesting because to a certain extent, I almost think what Ryan Cohn did was it's the other side of spoofing, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like when you when you see some somebody go out there and buy, you know, a shitload of junky one delta options that are four or five standard deviations out of the money that have, you know, virtually zero chance of, or let's call it one in a hundred thousand or one in a million, whatever it is. That's essentially, it's a yeah. little bit of a spoofing play, in my opinion. And it's almost worse than somebody sticking an order in to buy, you know, 10,000 calls below the market with that wants to cancel them as soon as there's a downtick. Well, let me ask you this quickly, because I know Dan wants to get in here, but I think you make a great point. I mean, you would do that understanding you're not going to cash this chip, but the optics around it's a bit of a loss leader in some ways. I mean, the optics around the headlines around that are going to basically exactly leverage you're going to get on the things that you have in the closer term stuff are going to pay in spades. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, effectively, it's a very cheap marketing play for your own success, which means that it's cheap marketing play for your other investments. It's cheap marketing play for your capital raise. It also puts nothing puts more strain 
on a underlying like BBBY, where you have, when somebody goes out and buys a ton of really far out of the money options, you understand as, as a market maker or the hedge firms, there's nothing you can do against those positions. It's the worst kind of order because the last thing you want to do is sell 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 junky out of the money options. They're unhedgeable. Like, what are you going to do? Buy 500 shares of stock yeah. against mm-hmm. 10,000 options? Like, there's absolutely nothing you can do as a hedge. So you're sitting there like, you know what? I hate this. And then the optics of it, especially on a, in a Reddit chat room or in a Discord chat room, the optics of it are, you know, they can make 100,000 stories, even though right. you know, it's theoretically the equivalent of 1,000 shares, you know, which is absolutely nothing. There is a massive amount of narrative that comes with it that you can make into any story you want. You know, Tom, and I keyed on exactly what you said last night on Fast Money when we were talking about this is like it's the opposite of spoofing in a way. And, you know, like, let's just say this company, though, went out and raised a bunch of cash at these levels, did a secondary offering. And all of the price action to the upside was based on this initiating, you know, buying 60 calls, 80 calls. It it, it seems like it should be illegal. And it might be the reason why this company, if they have smart lawyers, doesn't go out and do a secondary because this is not real. It's not tied to the fundamentals of the company. But here's the difference. If, If a Reddit trader got this idea going or got some thematic thing going about this, Fine and good, man, but this was somebody very closely associated to the company. But here's the thing, Dan. It's so funny you just brought that up because I said the same thing this morning in our morning meeting here. And But what's scary about this whole thing is when you go back and you look at GameStop and you think about that, I still think of GameStop as a $10 stock. And I still think of AMC as like a $10 stock. And this same strategy, as crazy as it is, worked for both those companies to create a massive amount of of market capitalization of which they were able to monetize. They were able to raise capital and they were able to monetize this movement. Now, in the past, there's 10,000 examples of people trying this and whether it comes with, you know, whether you want to talk about like Eastman Kodak or Tilray or even Beyond Meat or a billion of these stocks that have tried this and they've all failed. There's a couple of outliers. So when I look at BBBY, I think of it, is it going to be one of these crazy outliers that somehow manages to raise capital on this rally? Or is it going to be, you know, a $6 stock in three weeks? Like, I want to talk over. about, yeah, I want to talk about energy a second. I also want to, th- this has become my thing. You know, you and Tony Batts do a lot of work together. I'm allowed to say that because, you know, why yeah. not? But quickly, you know, you talked about the power of capital efficiency today, versus leverage. And I think that's really important. I think people sometimes think that leverage is the key to this game. But to your point, you know, capital efficiency makes a lot of sense. I encourage people to go to Tasty Trade website and check it out or go to Twitter and check it out the video. It's really, but can you just sort of give me a 30 second tutorial on that one? Well, the reason so many options traded yesterday in BBBY and the reason that, you know, the whole business has kind of been moving in the direction of derivatives and or options or options on futures and futures is that people have gotten smart. They understand that equities are very one dimensional. They're black and white. Either they go up or down and they're very expensive to trade. And so as we start to recognize that markets are essentially incredibly efficient, which means there's very little edge to either side, to the counterparty or to you, which makes it very fair, then really what is your edge? You know, what is the edge for Dan Nathan, a guy, Dami, a Tom Sosna? And the edge is 
that we can be capital efficient in our strategies. And so we can play things like BBBY using less capital if we understand how a market structure and how different products work. That's the whole purpose behind capital efficiency. The future of self-directed trading is going to be, you know, really it's going to revolve around capital efficiency, in my opinion, much more so than anything else. A month ago, you looked into the future when crude was trading 96 and you said, you know what, I think it's going lower. And got to tell you something, that really came to fruition. Dan was on that bus as well. I was not. Yeah. What are your thoughts here on crude oil? Because I know it's one of the things you'd love to trade. Yeah, I remain short crude oil. We've taken a little bit of our position off, but I think crude oil is trading really heavy. And every time it has an uptick, it goes down, you know, by double that next day or a couple of days. The way it's trading, I think it's going into the 70s. And I would like to see it in the mid to high 70s. It's got a chance to get into the 60s. I actually, I mean, it's always got upside risk, but I just don't, the way it's trading right now, I don't see it. It's trading heavy, but I still think the risk in crude oil is to the downside. All right, Guy Dami, give us your take real quickly, because again, you've been able to kind of think about not just crude, but also natural gas for two different reasons here. And the narratives were kind of, you know, they kind of got collapsed a little bit earlier in the year. But now that seems to be changing, especially as now we think about some of the supply demand dynamics and and what we think is going to happen in Europe over the next, let's call it, you know, 10 months or so. Talk to us about natural gas here and your thoughts on the direction. Yeah. So yesterday on Twitter, I put out, you know, the headline commodity is crude, but the problematic commodity is natural gas. And somebody said that's one of the the smartest things you've ever put on Twitter, which is not a high bar, but I happen to agree with that. And I think NACAS is telling a pretty interesting story here. So listen, you and Tom have been spot on in terms of crude oil and every rally has been sold. So it's, you know, who's to say it's not going to happen again? I mean, you know, it seems to be exhausting itself with every time we rally in crude, but NatGas, I got to tell you something in terms of industrial demand and the importance to industry, NatGas is equally important as crude oil. So for you people that think inflation is somehow going to magically go down, continue to watch Nat Gas. By the way, Tom, I want to watch something later because one of my dear friends in this world is the great Dylan Radigan, who is as wacky as he is brilliant. You guys got a podcast coming out. Speak to me and what you're talking about later. We do a podcast every Wednesday at 1 p.m. called Truth or Skepticism, 1 p.m. Central Time called Truth or Skepticism. We've been doing it now for almost eight years. It's the best podcast that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> but Dylan and I find a topic each week that we're on opposite sides on. And sometimes he just tries to make me happy and just, you know, just argues with everything I have to say, which is great because he's one of the few people that can, that really is amazing at doing that. Today, we are talking about disenchantment and disengagement in the workplace. There was an article on CNBC last weekend that talked about it's almost a $7 trillion drag on global GDP. And it's, I think that comes out to 11% of the total global GDP right now, which is just people that just hate what they do. And they're just not into it anymore. Now, part of it's, you know, obviously post pandemic and working from home and everything else, but it's a fascinating topic because we're so polarized on it. And so I think that's the um, topic of the day. It's it. This is not a political podcast. It's a financial podcast, but we we try to go off the edges a little bit. No, and I love when two brilliant people spar, and I'm saying that sincerely. It's always must listen or must watch or whatever the hell people do these days. But, you know, Dylan can basically take the other side of just about anything. He could take the other side of puppies if you needed him to, and he would be compelling. But thanks, Tom, for joining us. As always on Wednesdays, check out... 
tasty trade right dan i mean you want to read this out dan because you do it much better than i do i don't know i mean listen i've been following tom forever i know where to find him you can find him every morning on tasty trade and tasty works has all these great analytics that kind of help you think about all of these things he says how to be product agnostic so we appreciate what they do we appreciate tom coming on with us all right guy we got a big one here this is like a one-two punch these are two like big heavy hitters on market call yeah it's like we got ken norton and then we go right into smoking Joe Frazier. So I think in this case, Carter Braxton Worth is the smoking Joe Frazier. And I tease this at the top of the hour, Carter. You got a big call. But first of all, we got to bring you in. We got to look at what Credit Suisse is saying about Apple because everybody's getting all geeked up about the basically the largest company on the planet. Yeah, well, that's what makes market. I, I indeed saw that Credit Suisse. Well, but, but Carter, listen, before we get to your technical take here, I think it's really interesting. This is a reinitiation of this company here at Credit Suisse. This is a woman who's covered the company for a very long time. She just went over there and, you know, she's, listen, she's talking about all the, the, the fundamental narratives that we know, 1.8 billion installed base, you know, services um, and this blended gross margin that they get off of their lower hardware service margins, but also the higher service margins that are up near 70%. Keep growing the installed base. You keep growing that blended margin, which is much better than any other hardware company that's ever existed or so. And they are growing their margins. So that's the bull case here. She also thinks it does very well in a decent or actually a constrained macro environment. So, you know, that's one thing. The other piece of news, this is one of the only stocks that I see up on the day here is that the company is likely to have their iPhone 14 announcement on September 7th. Carter, no way. Yeah. So, guy, talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on Apple stock here. It's almost unchanged on the year. Fundamentally, what's your take? Well, I mean, she she outlines it really well. And when you have a vast percentage of the world population as part of your install base, you obviously are playing from a position of strength. Number one, when you have a quarter of a trillion dollars sitting around on a pristine balance sheet, you're playing from strength too. When you have services revenue, which now represent 21, 22% of overall revenue, you're playing from strength. And when you have a stock that people run to in times of distress and in times when the market appears to be going lower or under pressure, you're playing from strength. That's the bull case for Apple. And quite frankly, it's played out really well over the years, other than a five or six or seven times where you've seen meaningful, Dan, and when I say meaningful, 25 to 40% peak to trough declines. And I think Carter's about to tell you that we're on the precipice of exactly something like that. Well, so let's start with, <laughs> the, let's start with the former and then we'll go to yours truly. So we know what, there are about 50 analysts that cover the stock and the high on the street is up at around 220, 230. And you've got people who think it's, this is 12 months hence, right? And you've got people that think it's worth $1.40. Let's say Goldman Sachs. It's a sort of a well-known firm. Credit Suisse, well-known in there. Uh, ter- now, Goldman Sachs thinks it's worth 12 months hence, 140 So the stock will be lower. And this is why I, this is important for all of us. This is why you got to put away the funny metals. <laughs> so, I mean, these are very qualified people, highly educated, highly certified, which means they have MBAs or CFAs or CPAs. And then they took all that and they studied Apple, which means they studied hardware and they studied consumer spending. They studied, you know, trends in in apps and whatever. And this phone versus that phone, Androids. And how? 
How is it possible that one man and one woman could come up with 12 months hence, I think it's worth 140. And on the other side of the table, no, I think it's worth 201, 210. How is that possible? Of course, it's not possible, it's but not you brought possible. some charts to illustrate why it doesn't matter what they think. Correct. It really matters Correct. what the charts look like. That's right. So let's look at some charts. And charts are not infallible, uh, but they've got uh, as good a shot as any other method of getting you to the answer. The first of several, this is a comparative chart. And what do we know? It's year to date. And we know that, of course, the market's down and Apple is up and the spread is, you know, very wide. Look at the next, which is a one year chart. And it's the same thing, but the spread here, too. You've got uh, the market down 10 percent and Apple up uh, 15. That's a lot of spread. Let's keep going. Look at the next comparative chart. Now you're looking at a three year where the market is up 75 percent and Apple's up 240. Let's let's go a little further. Let's look at the five year. And these are to the Qs, right? When I say the market, I'm saying it's brethren, the Qs. This is a five year chart. Again, you're seeing more than a double Apple versus now there's autocorrelation. Apple's a part of the Qs, of course. But then finally, look at, a, at an Apple chart itself and then let's try to discuss it. You can call it a megaphone. You can call whatever you want. What we know is this. The stock has up 35 percent from its June low market bottomed in June, mid-June. So did Apple. And Apple just even if you're not a chartist, the angle of the line or the lack of variation, there's no drawdowns, no givebacks. It's just higher each day higher. It's unnatural. And so whether you do it through an option strategy or whether you just trim your long because you have a lot of it or you with new money go short, just sitting here and riding long and saying, hey, off we go. It's not good technique as I know it. Well, here's the thing, Carter. You know, you and I did options action together for 10 years on CNBC, and I love your work, you know, because to me, I spend a lot of time toiling away at the fundamentals and thinking about sentiment and thinking about a lot of things. But I also have a little, I don't know, a little, little, little history with options trading. And so the whole idea of kind of defining your risk. So I've keyed a lot of trades over my career off your technical take here. And when I saw this email come in from Worth Charting today, I was looking for a reason to get short Apple. And that was enough for me. So I did it through options. And I just want to walk through a trade idea um, that I had today that I executed earlier today. When Apple was trading around 174, I bought the September 16th expiration 170 puts. I paid about $3 for those. Those break even below 167. I have losses of up to $3 between 167 and 170 with a max loss of $3 above 170. What I really like about this trade idea right now is that option prices are cheap. I am risking about 2% of the stock price with a 4% lower break even. And really, when you think about what is the price of options here, we have a chart of implied volatility, okay? So the price of short dated options versus his, its historical volatility, okay? And when you look at this chart here and you see how at about 24% implied vol, which lines up with the historical vol, that says to me, expressing directional views, long premium and options looks very attractive here. And I just wanna make one other 
another point, how I'd manage this trade. I like to use a 50% mental stop of the premium I paid. In this case, I paid $3 for that put option. If that put option was only worth about $1.50 because the stock kept going higher or went nowhere and the option started to decay kind of quickly here, and it will decay kind of quickly, this is a short dated option, then I'm gonna look to cut my losses. I don't like seeing long premium option trade go to zero. That being said, if I look at my chart here and I've lined them up with Carter's lines here, if I get a break of that very, very steep uptrend and I have a target of about 160, that's that 200-day moving average, that would be my first target. I'm going to look to either roll these puts down and out or maybe spread them by selling a lower strike put, making, making a put vertical spread here. That's my trade on your technical view, Carter, and your fundamental view there, guy. We married it all. I love it. By the way, it's August 17th. These are September expirations. What date is that, Dan, for the home audience? September 16th, Guy Donnie. I like that. September morning, a great Neil Diamond song. Listen, it is morning here in the United States, as they used to say. Look at what I did there. I just love that. I love Carter Braxtonworth. Totally dig you. The artwork, Carter, is stunning, by the way. Totally dig Tom Sosnoff. I got a surprise for you as we get out of here, folks, just so you know. Tomorrow, Dan, you're going to be on houses, they say. Is that correct? Well, I'm going to be moving my kid into college, guy. You call that a holiday? What planet do you come from? Well, I think, you know, in some... Listen, I would define that as a holiday. It's all the way you look at things. It's a, it's a happy day. It's a momentous occasion, as typically holidays tend to be. But you won't be here. No. So as we say goodbye to the great Tom Sosnoff, as we say goodbye to Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting. As we thank our sponsors, FactSet, Tasty Trade, and Open Exchange, I'm here to tell you that tomorrow, all caps or no caps, I'll be syncing with the great EY from SoFi. Just the two of us, it's going to be must-watch whatever stream this is, TV, YouTube, Twitter. Oh I don't know what it is, but it's must-watch, Dan Nathan. So we'll see you folks later. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Carter. All right, All right see you. Bye-bye.